We're continuing our series this morning in the Gospel of John, trying to uh, take a look at Jesus from the perspective that if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. He's the, the clearest, most close-by representation of who God is, and that's the theme that we're um, using as we read through the Gospel of John in these months. I'd like to read with you this morning from John chapter 13, which is the story, the very famous story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. You may remember last week we discussed the last words that Jesus spoke to the public outside in Jerusalem. And now really for the rest of John, we're going to see Jesus just together with his own disciples and his own followers as he goes through the days before his death, burial, and resurrection, and then the time after that. So um, John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. One of the things, especially in the first couple of verses of this story, is we see that John and Jesus is rooting this whole, this whole story, this whole event, in Jesus' connection with God. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He knew that he had come from God, and he knew that he was returning to God. So in light of our theme of God is like Jesus, right at the beginning of this story of Jesus washing the feet, John is 
John is rooting Jesus in his, in his being God. If you want to know what God is like, this is what God does. He sits at table with his disciples and he washes their feet. And then John is very clear to say that Jesus knew that the devil had prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray him. So sitting in this group of people, in this room, having this meal, this Passover meal, Jesus knew that one of them was going to be the one who would betray him. And even still, even knowing that, and John is very detailed in his description here. Jesus got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. He poured water into a basin. He began to wash his disciples' feet, and he dried them with the towel that was wrapped around him. John is very clear in describing what Jesus did. If you just take a moment and imagine in your head Jesus going around to each one of the disciples. We have, of course, the interaction between Jesus and Peter, which we read. But Jesus goes around to each disciple, including Judas, and washes their feet. Almost ever since I've been a pastor or been leading church services, and that's been um, quite a few years now, I have um, had the temptation, particularly around Holy Week, to actually do this with one of my congregations, actually do a foot washing. I've never dared to do it, um, partly because it's not much in our culture. I think it would just be, there are churches, particularly in the United States, where it's part of their church culture, and there, of course, they, they do it quite often. But it's in most churches in the United States, it's not a part of the culture, and it's not part of the culture at Trinity. Um, I think that it would be hard for us to do that to someone else. It might be hard for you to do that with one of the other people sitting in this room. But I suspect that the harder part would be to let someone do it for you. Right? I may be willing to help someone else, especially if their feet are really dirty and need it. It's a little bit harder to take off my shoes and socks and let someone else wash them or help me in any other way that I need help. We're just not super good, super good at that. And that's, I think, for all kinds of reasons. So I was thinking this week particularly, how do we, how do we make this, this what Jesus did kind of practical for us? Again, I could have brought a bowls of water here and we could have actually done it, but that would have been a ceremony. How do we, how do we bring it home? And actually several things uh, came across my path this week that have kind of helped me, um, Think about ways to make this practical in our lives. How, how can we, in the following of Jesus, be a servant to the other? So the three, they're going to, they're three different things and they're random. They're my things. They may not be yours, but maybe they'll stimulate you a little bit just to think about how you can make this more practical than you 
perhaps already do. The first thing is that <clears throat> this Wednesday evening we finished, those of us that were doing it, finished uh, our study of the book by Matthew Voss, Scapegoats and Strangers. And this is a book that, for those of us that have gone through it, has challenged us to think differently about what Voss calls the strangers in our lives. And I have a couple quotes from the book that I wanted to read to you. Here's the first one. Rooting our identity in Jesus requires that we dispense with scapegoating, or to state it in a more sociologically, or to state it more sociologically, dispense with anchoring our, our identities in an, in an outgroup. One of the points that Voss makes in his book is, we tend to anchor our identities, first of all, in the group that we have, like this is our group, this is Trinity Church, this is our group. But we also tend to anchor our, our identities in the fact that they out there are the out-group. So as human beings, we tend to be looking for a group that's out there that we can say, we're, we're at least not them. And that's how we anchor our identity. Christ's once and for all sacrifice means that the people of God no longer need to define themselves in opposition to strangers. We are freed instead to love strangers, to embrace them, to work for their good, and to include them in our fellowship. We are not free, however, to scapegoat them, either physically by killing their bodies through disregard and neglect, or symbolically by positioning ourselves against them. An identity that rests in scapegoating, individuals or outgroups, Stands and op stands in opposition to an in Christ identity. The first thing to think about is, who is a stranger to me, and why, and how am I keeping them out? And now we'll go to the next quote. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Quoting Philippians two, should be on our lips more as it might move us to see things through the eyes of, and then Voss makes a list of the groups of people that we've talked about in the book. A poor migrant, a girl at church, an intersex person, a young woman from Thailand who makes our shoes, a prisoner, a looter, a person from across the political aisle, or even someone we perceive as an enemy of God, in, enemy of God, in world taking, we can begin to imagine something different and better for the society we might become. In other words, to be aware of the groups of people that to us are on the outside, just to become aware of them. And even as we read the chapter in the book on, on Nike and what Nike does and how they make our shoes and how they make money, did you know that, I believe it's Michael Jordan, gets $100 million per year from Nike for the rest of his life? While particularly women and sometimes children in different Asian companies, because Nike flips, moves around in order to get the cheapest rates, are working for $2.46 a day. And Nike refused to raise that by 50 cents. 
The last quote, the will to give ourselves to others and welcome them, to readjust our identities to make space for them is prior to any judgment about others except that of identifying them in their humanity. The will to give ourselves to others and welcome them, to readjust our identities to make space for them, is prior to any judgment about them, except that of identifying them in their humanity. This is maybe a little bit of a complex sentence. What he's saying is, our judgment does not come first. The first thing that happens is that we accept the other person in his or her humanity. Jesus did not judge Judas. He accepted Judas in his humanity. And he went and he washed his feet. Last Friday evening, Cindy and I went downtown to see Jesus Christ Superstar. I don't know if you're familiar with the, with the musical. The musical ends with the death of Christ. He's on the cross, and then his body is taken down, and then uh, he's, he's lying dead on the stage, or if it's a film in the, in the movie, and that's, then the curtain closes, and that's the end. That's the way I've always seen it, and I've been listening to this, this rock opera for 50 years. I've seen it a number of times. This evening, once it was over and Jesus was dead, he got up again, and they had a big cross in the center of the stage. And Jesus was sitting there, and Judas, whom you know from the story of the Bible, but also from the musical, had already hung himself. Judas also appeared. And then one of the, one of the other uh, cast members came and took the crown of thorns off Jesus' head. And the, the musical ends with Jesus sitting next to Judas on the cross. It's a totally new ending. It's, it's not in the original thing. I'm thinking to myself, why are they doing this? And I wonder if they're not trying to say, wherever they were after that death of Jesus, they were together. Jesus accepted the humanity of Judas. And even though Judas betrayed him, they were together. Wherever it was, and you can have all kinds of theological discussions about it, wherever it was, they were together. I'm sure you've all heard about the man who was killed on um, the subway in um, New York City this week. His name, was it Joseph Neely? I forget what his first name, I, I, I should have looked that up. His last name was Neely. He had uh, all, all kinds of problems and was choked to death on a subway car in, uh, in New York City, on a metro car this week. One of the witnesses of that who was there in the car described it this way to CNN. Juan Alberto 
Vasquez was on the train when the deadly chokehold began and recorded the situation as it unfolded. As soon as Neely got on the train, he started yelling about being fed up and hungry and tired of having nothing. Before he was killed, Neely said, I don't care if I die. I don't care if I go to jail. I don't have any food. I'm done, according to Vasquez. As the yelling continued, many passengers became visibly uncomfortable, and now listen to what happened, and moved to other parts of the train car. Here's a person in trouble, obviously struggling. And what does everybody in the train car do? They move away. Newley did not appear to be armed or looking to attack anyone. Then a rider, identified later as Penny, came behind Neely and put him in a chokehold, with the two eventually falling to the floor. Neely did not interact with that passenger at all prior to the attack. So there was no interaction between Neely and Penny who attacked him. So in this whole tragic um, set of events, and I'm just assuming this is true, this is probably not the whole story, but this is what was in, this is what was in, this is what this witness said to CNN. Nobody interacted with this man. What would have happened differently if someone had interacted with him, sat down next to him, I don't know what, This is a case of someone who is obviously a stranger. In that car, he's a stranger. And instead of people approaching him, and of course there's this whole culture that develops in a a car like this. Instead of someone speaking to him, he ends up dead. That's what Voss is talking about. How do we interact with the stranger, the stranger we see and the stranger we don't see. That might be a way to think about how do I make this what Jesus did practical for me. Washing the feet perhaps means that I see a stranger I never saw before or that I interact with someone who is a stranger to me and move toward him or her, rather than moving to the other side of the car. I'm going to skip over the next one, um, just just in the interest of time, Christopher. So those next couple of quotes we can just uh, skip over. The, the third thing, but I'm, because I'm skipping over the second, The third thing is, Friday I was at a training. Uh, Most of you know I'm involved in doing volunteer work for CASA, Court Appointed Special Advocates for Children. And I was at a day-long training. And the keynote speaker, the opening speaker for the day, was um, someone named Dr. Tiff Lanza who's a therapist specialized in trauma among marginalized groups. And here's how he identifies himself. 
He says, I, he said, I identify as a trans, non-binary, queer human. So here they were standing in front of me and us, giving an hour-long lecture on trauma and abuse and sexuality and all that goes on together with that. To me, a stranger. He said this, you all know the golden rule. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And he said, that's okay. I I get that. That's a fine thing to think about. But you notice that that word of Jesus is saying, do whatever you wish that others would do to you. He says, the way I look at it, what I prefer to say is, treat others like they would like to be treated. So instead of looking at you and saying, how, 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 how can I treat you like I would want to be treated? They are suggesting that we go to a deeper level. How do you want to be treated? In other words, how can I give up my rights in order to give you what you need, in order to serve you, in order to wash your feet. The daughter of my niece works in the mall in Texas that was shot up yesterday. She was on her way to work. Her boss texted her that she couldn't she shouldn't come to work because of the shooting. It gets a little bit close to home. I realize that issues around violence and gun violence and the Second Amendment are complex. I realize that we have constitutional rights. But what if followers of Jesus said, for the safety of our community and especially our children. I'm willing, we're willing to give up our Second Amendment rights in order to do everything we can to ensure the safety of each other and our children. I have a right to this gun, but I am willing to give it up for the good of the other. I'm going to treat them like they want to be treated. And I realize that some of us could say, yeah, but then we're unprotected. If all the good guys, this is the standard line, if all the good guys give up their guns, then only the bad guys will have guns and we're in deeper trouble than we were before. And my reply to that is, number one, it's complex, but number two, that's exactly what Jesus did. When he got up from that meal, took off his towel, got the, bo- got the bowl, 
and went over to Judas and washed his feet. The challenge for us in thinking about how can I follow the example of Jesus is to, number one, think about welcoming the stranger. And then about treating the other like they would like to be treated. And I realize that this is difficult. This is not easy. We are all in patterns of life. Our life is going on. We have our circles in which we move. We know everybody. We, we do our things every day. And nothing substantially changes. We, we just go along. And all of our culture and everything around us is, is telling us we have our rights. And we give money to help people. But you know, there are laws and there are rules and we, and, 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 and we're just caught up in this culture of judging the other, putting the other on the outside, not recognizing their humanity and not treating them like they would like to be treated or need to be treated resulting in the loss of life in a subway car in New York, in abuse, the loss of life in a mall in Texas, and I think there's been a mass shooting every day this week in the United States. And for something to change, for me as an individual, and for us as a group, something like an atomic bomb has to go off. Because the inertia, there's two kinds of inertia, you know, there's inertia that says once an object is moving, it keeps moving. There's the other kind of inertia that says when an object is at rest, it tends to stay at rest. It needs a strong force to start moving. And I know I need that kind of atomic force I need to sit on, the, on a Friday morning and listen to someone who identifies as trans, non-binary, queer, human. I need that in order to start moving me away and out of my, off my normal track. Am I not thinking about the stranger? I need Voss to tell me about what Nike does. And then go to the shoe store and ask the salesman, do you have anything that's made in the United States? And he says, no, I don't. Or whatever it is. The passage that we read this morning ends with these words of Jesus. If you know these things, that a servant is not greater than his master, that, that, that you're supposed to follow your master, if you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. And if you've been around Trinity for a while, and if you have a long memory, you may remember, and I don't even remember where, when it was, a few, month, a few years ago, we did a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are they who, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are persecuted, etc. And we said that that word blessed 
is more like congratulations. Or the word that we used for it was flourishing. Congratulations, you who are poor in spirit, are meek, and go through the list. And Jesus is using that same word again here. If you are willing to open your eyes and open your life to the humanity of the stranger and do so in a way that will cost you, whether that's in your home, is there somebody in your home who's a stranger? That can happen. Is there somebody in your classroom at school who's a stranger? Is there a neighbor who's a stranger? Someone you see in the supermarket? Someone you see in the subway car? Someone you read about? Someone you see on the news? Or maybe you're not aware of any strangers and maybe you need to take steps to become aware of strangers. When you do that, Jesus says, congratulations, you are starting to flourish. And we're not able to do this. This gap is too big. We're too encapsulated in ourselves. We're too focused on ourselves and our own needs and the needs of our tribe. We're not able to do this unless we tap into the love and power that enabled Jesus to get up from that table, take off his outer cloak, put on that towel, grab the basin, and kneel down in front of Judas and wash his feet. Unless we tap into that power, we're not going to be able to do this. And that's why we come to the communion table, to tap into that power, to say, Lord, I ignore the stranger. I'm a person who does not do this well. I need some inertia to move this block. And it's at this table that this inertia is found. So I invite you in a moment to come to this table if you want to follow Jesus in his example of washing the feet, not only of his friends, but also of the enemy who within a few hours was going to betray him.